Well, good afternoon, and I'm delighted to be welcoming a huge host of panelists here. I'm Michael Mainelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien, and it's a real privilege to be working uh, with City Forum uh, on this event, uh, which has been entitled Global Security Challenges, Existential Threats and Geopolitics. And of course, uh, with the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow, a very timely session that we're doing here as part of a City Forum series. If I may, I'd like to hand the floor over to uh, Mark Lee, the chairman of City Forum, who would like to say a few words. Very briefly, welcome to this discussion this afternoon. It is, we hope it will be a good start to a whole series of um, sort of forums we shall be arranging this aut late autumn and winter on global security challenges, shocks, hazards, resilience. We shall be focusing particularly on climate, on health, on biodiversity and on cyber security, and a number of um, old friends will be helping us. Michael Minnelli uh, has been of um, enormous value to, 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 to me in developing initial and end discussions to uh, these events, which have brought in uh, the group of people who work with him, as well as the group, and together with the group of people who, who work with us, and the previous discussions have been remarkably interesting. Uh, we've had to help over the years a very considerable amount of it from uh, NSA in Washington with whom we began uh, this series 13 years ago now and George Barnes the current deputy director of NSA will be keynoting for us during the sort of course of the of, of the program and uh, his predecessor Chris Inglis who was um, the deputy director with whom we first opened connections uh, he will be uh, part of this program, uh, so we hope, in the late winter this year. We continue to benefit from help from the MOD in this country, and notably from DCDC at Trivenham, as well as from other government departments and agencies uh, sort of here. Uh, we thought it would be appropriate, just as COP uh, uh, starts on the eve of it, to hold a geopolitical discussion. And uh, Michael is, to my mind, I've had long experience of working with him well over 30 years since I was in the pink newspaper originally he was in Dera when we first uh, sort of came together um, he is a sort of a polymathic chairman for discussions like this and, it could, and uh, the event couldn't be in better hands I'm particularly grateful to our um, sort of group of, uh, sort of panelists Frank Kramer, Isabel Hilton, Deborah McKenzie, Edward Springer you couldn't wish for a better group um, in developing the series, which we're working on now to sort of go, th go through the winter, it will, be, it will be extremely valuable to have uh, some comments and thoughts that come up from today and come up otherwise to uh, inform the program uh, which we should be developing and which we should be bringing to the attention of those who normally follow our activities in the next week or so. Very grateful to you, Michael, for uh, coordinating this discussion. Delighted to have a panel of, uh, of, of this quality and uh, you, you, your invitation and my invitation to this have produced an excellent group of people in attendance. So I look forward to a session this afternoon. Michael. Thank you very much, Mark, and uh, welcome all. The comedian Jay Leno once quipped, according to a new UN report, the global warming outlook is much worse than originally predicted, which is pretty bad when they originally predicted it would destroy the planet. 
Uh, and that quip actually comes from, sadly, from 2007. And so we're here today to look at these existential threats with a particularly powerful panel. And very sadly, I've had to constrain them on time and a number of other things. So my job is to get out of the way so you can hear from them. Three quick comments. Uh, one, yes, this is being recorded. And so if you like it, you can share it with friends and colleagues later. Secondly, the slides such as they are uh, will be posted. But most importantly, we're looking in the last uh, 20 minutes or so for you to participate in the questions and answers. Please use the GoToQuestion there facility. All of the questions, answers and comments will be sent to the panelists with your email attached. And I'll be feeding those into the conversation. So that's the simple thing to do. But please don't email me, WhatsApp me, text me because I'm here with you. Uh, and looking to hearing from these particularly great panelists. So first off the mark, if I may, is Frank. Frank, your thoughts on the US and the geopolitics of climate change and other threats. Right, so let me uh, take a look at the comparison between climate and some of these other threats. And my bottom line really is that uh, climate and the challenge of climate change is actually more complex uh, and less certain of successful resolution than some of the other global challenges we face. Uh, that's really because of geopolitical reasons, uh, but also technological and economic and societal reasons. Now, to be clear, I actually do think that we, and by that I mean the global we, can in fact be effective, but it's a hard, it's a hard problem. Uh, so let me start with the, with the U.S. Uh, the current administration, obviously, very highly supportive of effectively meeting the climate change challenge. Uh, that's a difference, of course. That's one issue uh, as compared to the prior administration where U.S. domestic politics go. But on the first day of this administration, U.S. rejoined the Paris Accords. Uh, in April, the president hosted a so-called virtual leader summit on climate. There were 40 countries there. Uh, it focused on climate targets. Uh, it focused on opportunities for jobs arising from transitioning to a green economy. It talked about the need to scale up international climate finance, and it talked about the importance of innovation for clean technologies. And yesterday, uh, the president offered up what's uh, in the U.S. called the Build Back Better Act. Uh, it's presented to the Congress, not passed, but it includes $555 billion uh, for clean energy and climate investment. So that's a, that's a serious investment. Um, how that all affects uh, the overall geopolitical picture internationally, I think a good way to look at it is to see what's different uh, as compared to say the two other uh, existential threats, one of nuclear war and the other of an even greater pandemic. Uh, on the nuclear side, uh, obviously the impact of any exchange uh, hypothetical between say Russia or China on one side, the US, maybe the UK and France on the other, would kill immediately hundreds of millions of people. It would have follow-on consequences for global society that would be equally devastating. But without in any way trying to underplay the extreme challenge that presents, such an exchange actually has not occurred, of course. And there are a number of reasons, and most importantly, I think, is recognition by the few countries engaged of the consequences, and that may be different than where we stand on climate. So an understanding of the consequences, the value of what's sometimes called strategic stability. There's a variety of mechanisms in place, including arms control that lead to st strategic stability. 
So in the overall, you have fewer countries involved, you have governments in charge, populations are not as directly engaged, there are mechanisms, and there's a tacit consensus on the nature of the problem and the way to resolve it. Uh, there's something similar occurring with the prospect of an even more significant global pandemic. Uh, obviously, by definition, uh, it could have global consequences. It could engage all countries. But when one looks at the experience of the current pandemic, and without overstating how well we've dealt with it, uh, there would be some prospects for prevention or amelioration. I mean, vaccines have, in fact, been developed. Uh, therapeutics are in process. And those actions have been taken by relatively few countries. Uh, we have not, of course, uh, accomplished worldwide distribution. Uh, we still need to work on that. Uh, it's a problem yet to be resolved, but it is in fact reasonably clear how to do that. When you get over to climate change, by contrast, uh, that requires efforts by multiplicity of nations, requires agreement on the 1.5C goal. It requires structured economic changes like the switch to clean fuels and it requires technological innovations on areas such as building materials like concrete and steel, or food production, uh, dealing with things like agriculture and meat production, which we have not yet accomplished. So it's a significant problem and none of those challenges are made easier um, by what I would call the entirely appropriate desire of developing countries to increase the welfare of their populations. In fact, the world's GDP should go up over the next 30 years, but doing that adds to the complexity of growth at the same time as transitioning to what you might call a green approach. And all of this affects people's livelihoods, highly consequential factor. So when you transition, transition to a green economy, you change the nature of jobs, not a simple matter. And finally, there's the issue of costs. Uh, and to make an obvious point, an important issue here is what financings can be available from developed countries to developing countries. Currently, uh, contributions are not up to what's needed, and there's every reason to think that in the future, more is gonna be required. So as compared to say, government-driven nuclear strategic stability or pandemic solutions, which to some significant extent can be created by few, climate, requires much more complex international economic and technological change. Solvable problem, uh, but coming back to the US, that means that we not only have to have effective policies domestically, uh, but we also have to think our way through how to have a feasible path to work with both developing and developed nations. And we're just not there yet, not only in terms of full agreement on targets, but also in developing the technologies and the economic structures required. So let me stop there, turn it back to you, Michael. Thank you very much, Frank. It's great to hear these thoughts coming direct from Washington. Isabel, your thoughts on China. Thank you so much. And um, my task is to, is to look at the intersection of geopolitics and uh, China's climate uh, action, and indeed the um, the existential threat to China of climate. So I, I just thought it might be helpful to understand where China's climate policies come from and what's driving them. And that is, of course, a mixture of understanding of the threat that climate change poses to China um, and the promise identified early that uh, resolving climate change offers to China's uh, industrial development and industrial model. 
so first things first um the threats and these are well understood in the leadership uh first of all water north china's extremely water scarce even without climate change and china has one of the lowest per capita allocations of fresh water and it's distributed uh extremely unevenly with severe shortages north of the yangtze and rather too much south of the yangtze the other big problem china has is that the cryosphere of the qinghai tibet plateau is in rapid retreat because of climate change and all of asia's rivers essentially derive from that cryosphere china's in particular the yangtze and the yellow river um, without that uh, then those rivers are in serious trouble thirdly the asian monsoon is largely uh, determined by again those ice fields in the himalaya uh, when they retreat, we can see already that the monsoon has become highly variable. So all of that makes for a very uncertain freshwater future for China. Secondly, extreme weather events, which China has always been prone to, and I'm sure I don't need to elaborate on those after those images that we all saw of people standing in a flooded metro train in Zhengzhou, which is a, a sophisticated city built to withstand climate impacts. We can see that it didn't really work. And people standing there as the water's rising, not knowing if they were gonna get out alive, and many of them didn't. Now, those images have been scrubbed from the Chinese web, but they haven't been forgotten. And, and uh, any government that allows that to happen too often is in some trouble. So impacts are a serious problem, both politically and of course, for humanitarian reasons. Sea level rise, China's most valuable development zones have been on the east coast and they're all highly vulnerable to sea, sea level rise and storm surges in particular Shanghai, Guangzhou, Tianjin, hugely important delta cities and they're all extremely ill-equipped to withstand uh, the impacts for example of something like um, Superstorm Sandy. Food security, all of this affects China's capacity to feed itself and to maintain economic growth. So having perceived these threats uh, and there was a sort of education program of the central committee in the politburo around 2005 2006 2005 of course being the year that china became the world's biggest emitter and that was a moment when a lot of things were happening in china there was a, a growing environmental crisis particularly in air quality which was causing social unrest and, and great discontent with the government which is really dependent on um on you know kind of performance legitimacy so when things go wrong it, the, the the party pays attention a lot of the things you have to do to clean up the air are also climate friendly that they weren't expressed explicitly as climate targets but the other thing that was happening was that china's rapid catch-up industrial model was running out of steam. China was looking for the next phase of industrial development, which involves, of course, moving up the value chain in all sorts of ways and identified the low-carbon technologies, the, the, the technologies that we would need to make a, a climate transition as the technologies of the future and began to invest in them heavily. This around 10, just over 10 years ago with the ambition of becoming the uh, dominant supplier to a carbon constrained world of low carbon goods and technologies and that was a highly successful uh, project which has left china as by far the biggest supplier of wind and solar technologies by far the biggest um, builder of new nuclear largely in china but with ambitions to go global um, the world's biggest producer of electric vehicles and batteries and so on down the list 
Now, that's um, smart thinking on the part of the uh, of the Chinese government. It also gives them an absolutely direct interest in the success of uh, of climate programs um, because they have bet the industrial farm on exactly that. So even were they not concerned about impacts, they have a long-term commitment. So what does that mean in terms of what they're offering the rest of the world, apart from much cheaper renewables, which have changed the cost base of developing new energy systems around the world? It's now cheaper uh, to install renewables than it is to build new coal or new gas even. So that's a big contribution because that changes the equation for a lot of emerging economies. In terms of domestic mitigation, clearly China could do better. Uh, we could all do better, but China you know, matters more because uh, it's so big and because it's so heavily um, it's so heavily committed to coal. It's heavily committed to coal because that's what China has. Um, everything else pretty much needs to be imported. China's always worried about the Malacca Straits, about the vulnerability of imported energy supplies. And one impact of the geostrategic tensions, to return to our prime uh, question, is that China has become extremely conservative and defensive in energy security terms. So you will recall that in um, 2020 at the UN General Assembly, Xi Jinping made uh, his big announcement that China would uh, be carbon neutral by 2060 and that it would peak its emissions by 2030 or before. The 2030 target is not new, it was on the table in Paris, it's very loose. The 2060 target is quite, is pretty important. And everybody expected that the 14th five-year plan, which followed in, in March, the following March, that's March earlier this year, um, would therefore elaborate how uh, that was to be achieved, instead of which it only got one mention in 140 plus pages. And what was mentioned in all the speeches was energy security. So clearly the tensions are having their effect. And that means that coal is not going to go away as fast as we all need it to go away. In fact, it's barely going away at all. So China's uh, domestic mitigation policy has become defensive for geostrategic reasons, um, and that's unfortunate. What is China bringing to the COP? It's largely bringing, if you like, the workings out of the targets, and that, that's important. It's saying there, there are three major documents that have been published recently. Uh, one is called um, unmemorably uh, one plus n, which one refers to the target and n is, you know, the policies to get there. And that is the product of a working party, which has been working since uh, May under the leadership of Han Zheng, uh, Vice Premier and Minister of the Environment to, to produce uh, actionable, credible policies across all sectors to reach peaking at 2030. And that looks at coal peaking at 2025. It looks at steel. It looks at all the major emitting sectors and says this is when they're going to peak. So that's important in the Chinese system. The second thing has been a white paper on climate change, so-called, which is largely a review of, you know, in greater detail of what I've, I've been essentially outlining. It's the story so far. And, uh, and the NDC, which there's a huge amount of overlap with the white paper. So it's not that China's bringing big surprises, but it is bringing credible delivery. And that is the contrast that I think China will wish to point. And I'll stop there. Thank you, Isabel. That's really good. Uh, Deborah, you're uh, dialing in from uh, far east of France, just on the Swiss border. Uh, your thoughts, please. Well, um, my expertise on this is, is more pandemic than climate, 
um, since that's what I've been looking at lately, but something about the parallels between the two has struck me. And uh, I hoped it might be of interest to the panel members if I asked the question whether the pandemic that we're all going through has changed how we face global warming. I think it has, both for good and ill. And I'd like to start with the good stuff. Um, for several decades, as we know, scientists have been making big, scary predictions about potentially existential risks. I'm taking civilization collapsing to mean existential, including from climate change and pandemic disease. And yet this week, two high-level reports came out, uh, once again confirming that humanity has failed to take sufficient precautions against either of those risks, despite mounting evidence that both can be unimaginably severe. It's the unimaginable part that I think has perhaps changed because of COVID. People find it psychologically hard to focus on future, novel, or catastrophic risks. And these big ones are all three. Pandemic preparation and climate measures until now have given the impression that no one has really believed that these disasters could really happen or we'd done more. When COVID first appeared, politicians from Wuhan to London to Washington were at first in denial and the delay was disastrous. When warnings about warming first appeared, many insisted humans could never possibly alter the entire planet that disastrously. And despite mounting evidence, some still do. Now, the pandemic warning has just come true. And I think a lot of people are going, oh, big nasty outcomes can happen. This wasn't just a lot of scientists trying to get attention. A recent study by the IMF um, came out in October, found, sorry, no, came out last spring, found 43% of their respondents, and this was a global poll conducted by Ipsos, were more worried about climate as a result of the pandemic. Only 7% were less worried. Experience is a good teacher. And consider that, as some of you have mentioned, COVID has so far been a remarkably mild pandemic. 1% mortality, I mean, much worse as possible. So it has demonstrated how united we all are by our shared vulnerability on this globalized planet. So there may also be more chance as a result of it that governments will work together. They did, for example, to limit the damage from another global problem, the 2008 financial crisis, and they must, as we know, to prevent climate disaster or the next pandemic. Having learned that COVID anywhere is a risk everywhere, governments and people might recognize more readily that deforestation or greenhouse gases anywhere also threaten all of us and take charge together as we must. I'm rather hoping that this has established more of a global consciousness of that kind of thing. So the good news is that COVID might have concentrated minds in the ways we need to prevent climate disaster, but it might also hurt. Fear makes some people fall back on their own tribes and refuse to cooperate with others, even in their own interests. We're seeing that with some governments now, and we're seeing it with COVID vaccine nationalism. We also tend, under stress, to cling more to comforting untruths. You all know about the epidemic of misinformation that accompanied COVID. The same thing has always accompanied debates about climate change, and it could still derail reaction, real action. And as insecurities and fears mount, that could become more of a problem. More practically, the economic cost of the pandemic makes further expenditure on climate look impossible to some governments. But again, silver lining. With COVID, they recognize that not spending 
costs far more. And that could happen again. It was amazing to watch serious government money suddenly become available to fight the pandemic as the seriousness of it sank in last, well, in 2020, mid-2020. Um, there is an even greater need for that, as we know, with climate. Yet the absence of even quite easy climate measures from the budget, if I might say so, that the UK government announced this week suggests that some governments still don't quite get it all the way. And that's a problem because the stakes are high. I think it's worth remembering the latest science on this in case some people listening aren't up on it. The latest science strongly suggests that we are less than a degree of average global warming. That's different from the degrees you might experience on a sunny day in your back garden. Average global warming needs to increase maybe less than a degree before it triggers uncontrollable feedback processes in global systems, for example, melting permafrost, that will make an unsurvivable hothouse earth inevitable. I don't know how many people are aware of that work. As we speak, governments have not proposed measures that would prevent that. We must hope that COVID's proof that big bad things can in fact happen will concentrate minds enough and result in action in Glasgow. And that's pretty much all I can say about it. Well, thank you. That's very, very helpful, Deborah. <laughs> Definitely take your point, future novel and catastrophic. Edward, the floor is yours. Uh, Mike, thank you very much and uh, good afternoon, everybody. I just had three points. One, to look at the impact on the UK and its socio-economy. Second, to think in terms of the industrial revolution that, um, that, that is presented to us as the, the solution. And the third, very briefly, some of the defence implications. So looking uh, locally as a you know, national problem for the for the UK, the obvious things are what does this mean for the UK at home? I'm not going to cover that in detail, chasing to, to net zero, but it's enough to say it's going to be a fundamental revision of our MO, our modus operandi, but also our MV, our modus vivendi, uh, and that will amount to an industrial revolution and a socio-economic revolution in short order. Who pays? There are some very significant political questions there. That's the easy stuff. But even just thinking nationally, there's an away element to this, um, which is massively significant. I mean, global inequalities are all going to go the wrong way as, as a result of climate change. That's been covered by, by previous panellists. That always introduces a security angle. And others, Franklin, spoke about yeah, nuclear war. Well, you know, ultimately, if inequalities go the wrong way, you end up with significant global competition. Then conflict almost always follows. Who, who knows uh, where that will end? These inequalities drive migration flows. We have a very diverse population here. We have interests across the Commonwealth. We cannot ignore global problems. We will be expecting more than other medium-sized powers to get involved and to do something about it. That tends to mean prevent strategies if you want to stop, if you want to stop massive migration flows. That means spending money in other countries. Who pays? So you come back, and we've used the analogies with conflict already. So something like a Marshall, a Marshall aid plan. Uh, because the consequences of global warming are at least as significant as a significant global uh, conflict. Uh, and the Marshall Plan was not just about an altruistic aid plan, it was about putting together an uh, alliance to, to achieve geopolitical advantage. And Isabel's already mentioned uh, the, the way China has approached this, and you could argue that their Belt and Road Initiative and everything that they've done, the Made in China 25, the investment in what I'm going to talk about next, the Industrial Revolution, is an attempt to uh, seek an advantage there already. 
So moving on to that industrial revolution, the fourth and fifth are combining, the fourth being the one everybody's been talking about for a while, big data, information tech, what have you. I'll argue that the fifth, which is a move to a sustainable, if you like, green economy has combined. Just look at the market capitalization of, I used to talk on this only a few months back, really about Apple, Microsoft, et cetera. Look at Tesla gone above one trillion recently in market capitalization as you know, very much a, 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 um, a company with, with green written all over it, whether you, know, whether you believe it or not. Look at ESG mandates, look at where the clever money is going and all the investments are going into sustainable technologies. Just sensible if you want to future-proof your investment, given where um, all sorts of uh, legislation is likely to go. Socio-economic change always follows industrial revolutions, and countries that emerge in the van end up having the economic power, leads to the political power, leads to the military power. There are other elements in here. Let me just throw one in. Moves to space. You don't have to be an Elon Musk fan and believe that we're going to be mining asteroids for rare earth metals to realise that a huge amount of what we do in space is going to have an effect on our ability to deal with climate change. It's several years now since I was talking to an entrepreneur who was looking at, had set up a company to look at how we move all our server farms into orbit. And that actually is based on uh, green considerations when you consider the energy that's used by just like the, you know, the, uh, the internet at the moment. So the point here for us is all of these policy considerations are interconnected in a way, as Isabel has pointed out, China has been thinking about for many, many decades. So I think the challenge for the UK is, do we have a government strategy making apparatus that can pull all these policy considerations together to allow us to emerge in a position of geopolitical advantage with our allies? Hence, I come back to things like the Marshall Plan. So the final point, very briefly, on the defence related, or the last big defence paradigm was the US change, was the US Civil War, which started exactly 160 uh, years ago and pretty much all warfare has followed the industrial age pan that was started then as we move to information age as i say now with uh over overtaken emerged with the industrial revolution of sustainable tech military power is going to rely on all those in all those the, the dual use element of all that investment all that that money that's going into the socio-economy our militaries are going to look um are going to look very uh different indeed at the moment, you'll still find military folk who think it doesn't apply to them. We'll still have diesel-driven trucks, etc., etc. That is not going to happen. We are going to have to learn how to embrace what's coming out, the innovation, the uh, progress that's being made by the fourth and fifth industrial revolutions. And if our militaries uh, do not uh, adapt very quickly as well, then once again, we're going to lose power in the geopolitical arena. So those are my three thoughts, Michael. Back to you. Thank you very much, Edward, and very, very sobering. Now, we were going to structure this around uh, three quick remarks on some themes. Uh, and the first theme that we were looking at was how big are other existential threats compared to climate change? Uh, is that, would any panelists like to make a case that climate change is big? Sure. But there's something else that's bigger? Or what would move climate change to one side? We've got large lists of these existential threats. And where does climate change fit uh, amongst a panoply of those? Isabel, do you want to have a go? Well, I would pitch for climate change, actually, given the choice. I may be disappointing you in uh, in that regard. Um, when when I first started to look at climate change, and, and you know, previously I, I'm a journalist and I had largely covered small wars in faraway places for my career um, up till then, um, and societies in various stages of collapse and difficulty as as, as happens. And what occurred to me with climate change was that whereas wars are 
are dreadful in the end they stop and societies get going again and you know they're damaged but different things happen you rebuild climate Never. change is very different in that once the impacts happen uh, they're going to go on happening they're going to go on creating and de uh, uh, disturbances and destabilizing society creating the kind of, of impacts that others have talked about and that's not going to that's not going to stop so that politically the kind of um, political certainties and political stability that you need to make major decisions, it, it, the, the chances of our having that as climate change uh, impacts become less, not more. This is a sort of tragedy of the horizons that, um, that actually what we need to do about climate change, we need to act on climate change. The better time was yesterday, the, the less bad time is today, tomorrow. We may not have the capacity to, even though the necessity will be rather self-evident. So in that sense, I think that this is existential in that I think our systems are singularly ill-equipped to cope with uh, what climate change delivers and the timetable on which it delivers it. Edward? Uh, I think my answer is a very, very much a version of that. And uh, by analogy, I remind us what um, McCallan, head of MI5, said when he was asked about the, the, the threats, and uh, because Russia seemed to be the most sane, he said, well, ever so often, you know, Russia can generate spells of bad weather, but China's changing the climate. And so I think all those in, immediate threats that, uh, that, that we could discuss here, now most of them have been mentioned already, they have an immediacy and a salience when they hit, and they, and, and they provoke our desires to deal with a crisis, and, and humans are, are wired psychologically to, to deal with that. Um, you get climate change wrong and it will exacerbate all those other minor problems. What you'll actually see is they, is, is, is they come together and, 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 and form some clusters of problems which are going to be very hard, very hard to deal with indeed. And, and, and yet, and Isabel touched on this at, yeah, at the end there, because this has been this absolutely cataclysmic change, but it has been happening slowly, we're not programmed to spot it or see its, its impact because it's got a, it hasn't got that alarming fast rise time. And so I think this is, this is you know, where, where the human head has to over, overrule the human heart and, and, and say, I you know, genuinely think if you, get, if you get this wrong, then it, all the other problems will be exacerbated, but they will pale in comparison. Okay. I'm just gonna slide to the second theme. Frank, I saw your hand up, but um, actually there are a couple of comments here that I think might also fall to you if you, if you don't mind. Uh, Andrew Ross uh, points that uh, we've had a lot of destruction of nature and biodiversity, floods, drought, disease, supply chain failures, appears unstoppable. You know, is economics capable of dealing with this type of uh, geopolitical issue? Um, we've also got a uh, point here from Stephen Rumbold, equally related to this. Is China, Chinese foreign direct investment in low carbon power generation mostly a good thing for climate change or mostly a bad thing geopolitically? So Frank, you might want to pick up on uh, some of that as well as your own comment. Right, so just on the first point, um, I don't think prioritizing one of the existential threats over another uh, is really a way to go. I think we just have to deal with all of them. Um, with respect to uh, can economics uh, achieve the desired result, I don't think uh, with, if you might call it the market alone can, um, there are too many externalities, um, but that's 
uh, not something uh, that we haven't dealt with before. Uh, go back to air and water pollution. Uh, that's the role of governments to help correct, if that's the right word, uh, or shape the market in such a way that we we deal with those externalities. That's not easy, but it's but it's doable. Um, and on the question of Chinese foreign direct investment, uh, it's it's a complicated question. I was thinking about it actually in the context of the UK if, uh, day before yesterday. I believe uh, in round figures, China is about to uh, invest in uh, a battery production facility in in the UK uh, for electric vehicles. And my view is that we need to have a lot of those capabilities uh, put in place and having foreign direct investment, Chinese foreign direct investment in let's say UK or US or India or wherever, um, that actually uh, enhances the capacity to meet a climate challenge, I think on balance uh, is generally positive. I need to think my way through each, uh, not each particular investment, but categories and I haven't really quite gotten there. But broadly speaking, I think we, we wanna have uh, a great deal of that. The, the uh, a significant issue um, is whether uh, for key uh, critical infrastructures, uh, having Chinese, uh, in particular software, uh, given the uh, cybersecurity attacks that we've seen, the so-called Hafnium attack and others uh, by China, whether or not we wanna have Chinese software. Uh, but as a general proposition, I think we ought to encourage uh, investment um, to get to where we need to be uh, with respect to the solutions, if you will, uh, with, uh, on the technological side. Okay, I'm picking up some comments here. Uh, Alex uh, Hitchcock is uh, curious about resulting water shortages. So we're looking kind of at what you might, you could potentially call second order effects of climate change, although you could equally call it uh, human mismanagement. Um, and he points at uh, the potential exodus of billions of citizens, perhaps from Iran, due to mismanagement of water. John Adams is looking at food security. Again, that second order effect, the four-year drought and now famine on Madagascar. Does this presage a global crisis for soya, wheat, maize, et cetera? Um, so we're looking here at people, I guess, agreeing with all of you that this is an overarching problem, but we can't just pick one geopolitical threat to, to deal with. Any comments on either of those from anyone? Deborah? I think it's the wrong way to think about this, to think, oh, well, we'll solve climate change and then we'll get on with another problem. Or, gee, it's a shame climate change keeps pushing all these other problems like water and agriculture to one side. In fact, most of what you can do, I mean, there was a list actually made in the, in the questions you helpfully sent around. Um, water shortages, poverty, migration, pandemics, food security. Dealing with all of those in the right way with clean technology goes a long way to solving a lot of climate problems. And indeed, a lot of climate problems, it's not second order. That is the impact of climate change. All of those things are what's gonna really start ripping things apart. And of course, all of those things start feeding back. One thing that the pandemic has also taught us is that once you start disrupting things here or there, you get cascading failures. I mean, the people who study complex systems have taught us, and this is increasingly happening in our society as a whole, as, as it's more and more um, a, a single, closely coupled complex system. We're seeing um, 
all these supply chain disruptions, for example, with the pandemic, a lot of them were not predicted. Um, that will happen with all of those effects too. So if we think of it as a, a large group of problems that we all have to attack at once, and maybe if we stop thinking of it as primarily geopolitical, I mean, perhaps it's because I'm not primarily professionally focused on that as you people are, but is, could we kind of think of this as a planet? I mean, is this possible? You know, yeah, we're all gonna be jostling for influence and we've got to keep that in mind, but we all have common interests in this. We all want to survive. Um, surely at some point, you know, people aren't going to be doing what they did in the final scene of, of, um, um, of, of uh, what is it? How I learned to uh, love the bomb, what um, Dr. Strangelove. Uh, and as the world is collapsing, take pictures for strategic advantage, you know, in the war room. No, could we kind of think that maybe it's the world collapsing? That's important here. I'm, I'm a little worried that, that people are thinking of this, not just through the spectrum of climate change being one problem, all these other things being different problems, they're not really. Um, and also, actually, what mostly matters here is geopolitics. I, I take it that it is if you're trying to get countries to commit to things, but ultimately countries must see that the overarching interest is in keeping the global system, which is not constrained by boundaries any more than COVID was, working in everybody's interest. I mean, that's got to finally create some kind of global solidarity that overrides some geopolitical considerations. Possibly that is hopelessly naive, but just thought I'd get it out there and see what you thought of it. Yeah. Well, Michael, we could I just very quickly on threats that, sure. that, of course, all the threats that were mentioned existed before climate change, but we have to understand climate change as a threat multiplier that, you know, that they will all get worse with climate change. So, you know, we're just kind of trying to bail out the sinking ship with a with a you know symbol if we don't fix climate well it's heartening to hear this there's a phd student amal Tatva in the audience who uh, makes a comment that considering that it is interdisciplinary geopolitics and climate change are our components and we need to really just look at what's been done in the past learn from previous treaties initiatives and try and uh, avoid repeating history uh, simply by encompassing the problems as a whole so i think we're all coming around to the idea that this is very much a holistic problem and we have to tackle them, we can't pick them apart. And now, just before we turn to the audience uh, in Toto, I just, we had one last theme, and I certainly hear this a lot on the streets uh, when people go, well, it's, what's the point in us doing anything because, and it used to be the US, uh, now it's, you know, it's China, as long as they keep emitting, there's no point in us doing anything. So looking here locally, does the UK really matter? Uh, and here I might, if I could, just pick quickly on Frank for an external view uh, from the States and then turn to Edward uh, for the home view. Right. So, uh, of course, uh, my view is the UK matters. Um, but the let me say why. I, I think there are uh, two things. One, I think we have to all, if you will, uh, to take Deborah's point and put a different word on it, to, to, to take a leadership perspective uh, that we all need to uh, show that this really counts, um, and I think that's one thing. The second is uh, UK is a very uh, highly effective technological country, uh, and as I've said numerous times here, uh, I think that uh, technology uh, is uh, an absolute requirement, um, not only for the mitigation aspects of climate, uh, but also for what's going to happen uh, with respect to adaptation. 
Um, so uh, whether it's in food production or cement production or otherwise, um, we're going to need a lot of uh, technological capabilities, and UK has capacity to add to those. So leadership and capacity would be my two thoughts. Edward? Yeah, thank you. I mean, the, 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 the first one's just maths. I mean, I, I get irritated when I hear this. Why should we bother already? 1% of the problem. I mean, there's 100, what, 202 countries recognised in the world. If everybody said, oh, I'm only a small fraction, I don't need to do anything, you'd never aggregate it up. That's a simple thing to say. I think I'm going to agree with um, with Franklin on it, then maybe have a, a slight counter to what Deborah said a second ago, perhaps, just another point of view. I, I think that's right. I, I think the um, the convening power the UK has, it's a P5 nation, you look at the number of, um, you know, the, the, the academic output of this country, you look at the fact that they have had the history of leading us into this through the first industrial revolution, all those things suggest that if we are going to rebuild a low consumption socio-economy, then there's going to have to be some form of academic commercial industrial leadership shown and that's going to come from countries like, like the UK. So I absolutely uh, 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 believe we should do that. And I, I suppose my slight, my slight pushback um, is I don't think you can take the geopolitics out of this. Um, I know I'd love to believe that countries would sit down and have a kumbaya moment, but I just don't think they I just don't think they behave that way. And I, I, I don't see, well, I know maybe we're picking on China too much, but when you had the Made in China 25 policy and you've got the idea of marching to 2046, I don't think that's going to, that's going to change overnight. Um, and if Franklin mentioned things such as building um, the inward investment in, in, in the UK, if you end up with a dominant market position, you end up setting the, setting the rules. And I think the West would find it quite uncomfortable to be living in a world where we're quite used to setting rules that deal more than the socio-economy, the way the world reacts with each other. I do, I do think having those set by democracies certainly appeals to me. And so for all of those reasons, I think there is, a, there is absolutely a reason for the UK to take this massively ser seriously, to forget about those 0.87 and 1.1 numbers and think about global leadership role. Okay. Well, we've uh, moving to uh, Q and A at the moment, and we've got a, an interesting question here for everybody from Madeline Moon. Uh, Madeline Moon, many of you will know, and in fact was a previous expert on another city, well, on several city forum events. Madeline asks: During the pandemic, governments have implanted levels of monitoring, restrictions, and oversight of people's lives and procurement, unprecedented outside of wartime. What impact do you think this will have in the short and longer terms on trust and faith in government's performance legitimacy to tackle climate change and other threats? Uh, Deborah, any thoughts there? Well, this was wartime. Um, you know, uh, what was it just recently? The uh, toll from COVID in the United States uh, exceeded that from World War II. Um, and it's not only that, it was a war that, for which we rapidly acquired the weapons and, and we needed certain circumstances in order to deploy those weapons um, um, effectively. Uh, unfortunately, certain forces kept the United States from doing that. Other countries did it a bit better, um, largely because of popular buy-in um, to the things that needed to be done in terms, I wouldn't call it surveillance, in, in terms of community effort, in terms of, of public interest, in terms of, you know, suspending 
in that constant trade-off between individual interests and 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 community interests of so the, the 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 collective versus the personal we had to go a bit more collective than usual in order to fight this war we had to do it in world war ii as well and you know many of the things we needed to do like obeying you know group restrictions yet were intrusive um as 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 ms moon points out um we needed to do that to get things done and i think some countries, I mean, from my perspective here in France, you know, I had a policeman standing out at the intersection in front of my house. I'm in a little sort of rural subdivision outside, well, across the border into France from Geneva. It's basically a dormitory community for Geneva. There were policemen standing there saying, Oi, yeah, you're out walking? Are you walking the dog? Are you getting your hours exercise a day? No, then go home. You know, I'll walk you there if you, you know, give me any lip. And, and you know, and therefore, France actually got its numbers down a lot more quickly than say the United, the United Kingdom did at the same time, or maybe I should say England. Um, basically, if you get that and it obviously works, you get buy-in. One of the things I'm not hearing discussed is the fact that, I mean, people have said, why do we need all these people in the street shouting outside the meeting? Because you're gonna need buy-in. If these guys decide to do anything meaningful, it's going to mean there will be some economic losers out there. Um, similarly to the pandemic, we will have to do some painful things. And to get buy-in, everybody needs to feel that they are accomplishing something that is beneficial to them. Here in France, I mean, people grumble a lot about government measures. They're notorious for it. But, you know, they did it. And, and they got results. And they saw it. And they got buy-in. You didn't have any gilets jaunes um, out there protesting that the government was trying to keep them alive. Um, basically, that's what we need to start thinking of now. And I think thinking of it in terms, and perhaps some of you could address this, in terms of, of reviving the idea of, of working for the collective interest, that was kind of where I was clumsily trying to get with my talk about geopolitics. We automatically think about power relationships, and yeah, you need to, to get anything done. But we should think about common interests as well, because in this case, more than for anything else, there are massively overriding common interests. We all want civilization not to collapse we want to survive we want to see not millions of people dying because of the things that could happen as a result of irreversible extreme climate change which we are getting close to so you know surely we must have common interests i think from from the micro level like that policeman outside my door to the macro level like cop 26 um the idea of common interest of public interest of everybody sort of sort of dealing with the implications of we're all being in this together. Everybody said that about the pandemic, we're all in this together. Well, the same is true of climate change. And surely that kind of thinking maybe is something we could find ways to promote with ordinary people who are going to have to buy into the decisions, if decisions are made, and with governments who have to make the decisions. Well, as you've got a couple of comments in here, uh, really very much along these ideas of commonwealth, if, if I can call it that. Uh, Richard Parler on, you know, Bhutan has already gone net zero. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> they do not focus on GDP growth. Is it time to abandon our obsessions with GDP growth? Uh, uh, we've got David Miggett questioning uh, what I might call perverse circumstances. Is it possible that we'll have some form of Jevons paradox? That's the uh, economic paradox that by reducing the cost of something, it rebounds and you, you wind up consuming more of it. Um, so an interesting, an interesting question there. But what I might turn to uh, is Simon Webb. Uh, Simon uh, says, many experts argue that the responses in prospect will be too slow to prevent the onset of serious weather events. What steps in international preparedness might be jointly achievable to be readier to react more quickly if the experts are right? 
uh, he, he calls it forces at readiness in the military analogy and trying to learn from COVID. Uh, Edward, any thoughts there? Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, I'm going to pick up on Deborah's good point, actually. Um, uh, how do you incentivize people to, to think? And, and I, I would point out that certainly everybody I speak to, the, you know, the Western bloc, who's been talking in geopolitical terms, especially about and increasingly about China over the last five, maybe ten, 10 years, has always been immediately followed up with, but we don't want a totally unconfrontational <coughs> because we have to work with. And what you then come back is surely there are areas where you work together over things and so perhaps uh, here the the, the, yeah, the one thought I had over military readiness military readiness involves exercises and training were you to actually very publicly run exercises to deal with the consequences of climate change it would make those consequences much more manifest to the general population were you to run exercises in the Asia Pacific region where you would take the military the, you know, the military purpose out of the military exercise and say it's disaster relief and humanitarian activity you could pull in from across if you like the geopolitical divide and 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 play to that 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 theme of common interest with the added benefit that people take an interest in military exercises and it might make them think about why they were so necessary so i think there is i think there is something to it um military people have been talking about it but it's the sort of talk that gets more honored in the breach when it comes to activity maybe that's something that could come out of the sidebar discussions around cop 26. frank one additional thought uh is that we need to focus as i said earlier on adaptation as well as mitigation um, because i don't think we're going to stop all the, the effects uh on a dime so to speak uh, one area uh, is infrastructure standards of various kinds uh, and dealing with uh, a number of the issues, uh, uh, some of which uh, Isabel listed uh, with respect to uh, urban communities that are uh, next to the oceans, uh, dealing with uh, uh, fires, uh, dealing with hurricanes and, uh, you know, typhoons. And so as we go forward, we want to have uh, standards, I think, that uh, at least allow us to uh, ameliorate to some extent uh, what is very likely to happen in terms of the climate effects that really are not stoppable. Um, we also want to look at issues, I think, uh, for example, uh, on food production uh, and think through uh, how uh, grains, for example, will be affected by climate change and whether or not we can uh, generate, you know, 50 years ago, we had the green revolution with, uh, you know, the grains uh, increasing in productivity uh, as, as heat and other, you know, heat and drought uh, occur and some places more water actually, uh, what's that gonna do to food production? So I think we just need to think our way through uh, multiple adaptation measures as well as uh, mitigation measures. Okay, good. Well, we've, um, we're coming uh, close to the end, and I want to make sure that all of you have an opportunity to get kind of a final comment in on this idea of existential threats. But I'd also like, and uh, we've got, to, as I said, COP26 coming up uh, starting this weekend in Glasgow, in the Conference of the Parties. So I wouldn't mind if uh, we sort of had to responses i'll take them in reverse order sort of a warning there edward uh and uh, what i'd like to do if i could is could you equally comment please on whether you're optimistic or pessimistic about uh cop being a success or not 
and uh, what you think might be uh, the biggest achievement from it, but also your thoughts on uh, climate change as an existential threat. So, Edward, I'll, I'll hand over to you if I may. Yeah, thank you very, thank you very much, Michael. I, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic that there's going to be um, some great headline deliverable of everybody agreeing and pledges from across the board and the world being able to look at a roadmap over the next five years, which gets us to complete safety. Uh, but I think behind that, and maybe part of the reason, there, 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 is, there is still an optimistic subtext, which is everybody's now having a much more serious conversation about this. Uh, I don't think if you'd run this webinar two or three years ago, you'd have had similar comments in the questions. You'd have had one or two people who'd really read into it who were thinking about, who were thinking about it. So if you like the conversation at conference, it's going to be much more serious. And I think it will tee up those much more discreet, uh, quiet, almost track two diplomatic discussions that are going to have to happen behind the scenes to move us forward in ways which are which are consequential and with agreements um, that are concrete. So what I would be looking out for is not the things that are coming up in the headlines necessarily, but they're the agreements for what's going to happen behind the scenes. For example, already referenced by panelists, the, the quieter agreements that went on between you know, Obama era protests and the Chinese to address these concerns. And that's where you're going to have the real horse trading done. Interesting. So not wildly optimistic, but the direction of travel is positive. Yeah. Deborah? I'm really reminded, which kind of shows how long I've been looking at issues like this, of the agreement of the initial ozone treaty um, back in the 80s. And they agreed to cut back on chemicals like CFCs that destroyed the ozone layer to a certain extent. Uh, and then I think a month after that, they announced the ozone hole. They knew there was an ozone hole already. They didn't announce it before the negotiation. What happened was they negotiated the best treaty they could get under the circumstances and then came out and said, oh my gosh, there's an ozone hole. This isn't going to be enough. And everybody panicked and signed, in fact, a much stronger version of the treaty in the next iteration. I kind of wonder if um, without any sort of deliberate kind of withholding of information happening here, that might happen this time. We, we, we sign up to something. We come to some agreements in COP26. They won't be enough. And then we start getting some real climate related disasters and everybody goes, oh, my gosh, we got to do more. And suddenly we get a rush of people agreeing to better targets. I don't know if targets are the answer, possibly quiet agreements here and there, as you say, are a large part of the answer, but certainly targets are part of it. The question is whether we can do that fast enough, um, whether if we don't start moving seriously, more seriously than we are likely to at COP26, you know, before there are some serious, undeniably climate-related disasters, whether we can still do anything about it. That's, that's sort of the major question. But possibly it won't be a disaster if COP26 doesn't go all the way, because it wasn't a disaster when the ozone treaty didn't go all the way. Afterwards, people were really scared and they really ratcheted it up as a result because it was obvious they hadn't done enough. I'm sort of hoping maybe something like that could happen again, but it's a kind of a small hope. Yeah. Isabel, concluding thoughts? Sure. Okay. I mean, COP26 is, we're not negotiating a new treaty here. We're trying to make an existing treaty work. And that, and, and what does that mean? It means uh, keeping a credible pathway to keeping global average temperature rises below 1.5 degrees. We're really close to that not being possible. But this isn't a make or break. 
uh, meeting either. We are not going to close that gap in Paris. We know that already. But as long as we can move it along and as long as we can advance other processes which will continue to accelerate it, this is a continuing process. I think that people are out of out in front of politicians on this. You look at all the, the public opinion surveys in, in Europe, in the UK, even in the United States, people are seriously concerned and, and frustrated at the lack of leadership. I do think that there is um, something that we have to be quite careful about, that just as with the pandemic, there is some very, very well-funded malicious misinformation um, with a big overlap, actually, between vaccine scepticism, for example, and climate scepticism. And, you know, as Marxists used to say, this is no coincidence. You know, stuff gets real at this point. Um, there are big interests in play. And we have to be very, very aware that uh, not everybody has the um, larger interests of humanity in the front of their mind. Uh, so, you know, this is this is serious and not all enemies are outside our borders. So. Okay. Thank you. And Frank, uh, your minutes worth. Right. So I think the uh, uh, the NDCs, so to speak, are, are already set. So we're not going to get surprises uh, with respect to them. Uh, my own hope is that uh, what the conference allows for uh, will be focused on some other areas, which may or may not come specifically out of the conference. Uh, but uh, finance is one. Uh, in particular. A second I've mentioned a number of times is uh, technology advancement. Uh, a third is, uh, which overlaps this, is to really take account of what needs to be done in countries where, uh, for example, India, where there's a heavy uh, reliance on coal, uh, likewise as Isabel has talked about with respect to China, and how we really can change that. So. I don't think that you'll see that in the headlines uh, at COP, but I do think those are the key issues. Well, that's wonderful, folks, and I really, really do appreciate uh, all these insights. It says here to summarize, and it would be kind of pointless. You've heard it from the experts. You don't need to hear it regurgitated by me. But I do think there were four points I, I would draw out quickly. Uh, the first was uh, the point, I believe, uh, made by Deborah that you know, we're very, we find it difficult to deal with future novel and catastrophic threats. And of course, you concluded, Deborah, on a, a severe warning from nature would maybe get, get us back into action. Uh, Frank, you, you reminded us that most of the technology out there hasn't been invented yet, and we need, we need to get to grips with both that and the economics uh, behind it. Um, I thought that was very much there. Uh, Isabel, uh, and others, I think we all agree that you can't pick out one existential threat. They're all united, but climate change is to some degree a, a, a leading umbrella, but it involves so many other things that also need to be tackled at the same time. And I really like your point, Edward, that uh, we need to think about exercises if we're going to uh, move forward. And I think there are a lot of exercises that are needed. Um, if I may, I'd like to thank uh, our participants in the audience. Thank you for all your comments and questions. As I said, they will be fed back to our panelists, uh, and so they may or may not wish to answer, but they will have the emails for all of them. I'd like to thank our partner, City Forum, very much for setting this up, for even conceiving of, of, of this series, uh, which I'm finding certainly fascinating. And if I may, uh, to our panelists, uh, you, of course, deserve the greatest thanks of all for your preparation and contributions. 
And unfortunately, as I keep saying, we find it extremely difficult to get the technology of applause right. So I have brought a little applause meter here. Uh, this is my mindfulness karmic clapper, and I will be very calm as I go. And I thank you really most sincerely for some really wonderful contributions. I think we're all going to be excited at seeing what might happen in the next two weeks, but I think we do so today with a sense of realism. Thank you very much.